Morning, One Hope. To see you guys. Hope you're all still alive there. I'll try not to be too long. I don't want to be responsible for any frozen corpses left in the pews afterwards. <laughs> so, uh, great. So, um, yeah, as Stefan said, um, following on from a really wonderful and thought-provoking, encouraging series on the book of Ruth, we're going to be kicking off a new series today on the Sermon on the Mount uh, called Transformed, A Life of Discipleship. And so this is really exciting, and with some exceptions, we're going to be spending most of the rest of this year diving into chapters 5 to 7 of the book of Matthew, where the Sermon on the Mount is located. So, if you've ever been confused, challenged, frustrated, encouraged, or just gobsmacked by the teachings of Jesus, which is probably most of us, this is going to be a great series. Okay, but before we get started, I'd like you to imagine that if you had a brief opportunity to summarize the gospel for a friend who doesn't know much about Christianity, like elevator pitch style, like less than a minute, what would you say? I'm going to ask you, just in groups of two or three, where you're sitting, just to, to thrash this out, share your definition with one another. Um, if you're visiting or you're not part of One Hope, there's no judgment. Just give it a stab and see how you go. Um, it can just be a couple of sentences. It doesn't have to be long. But yeah, I'm going to give you three minutes or so to, to do that. All right. See Paul starting to preach. <laughs> Okay, who, can I, who's, the, who's going to be brave enough to share their definition with me? I'll throw in a crisp 20 for you. <laughs> who's first? <laughs> Go on. Anyone want to share their definition of the gospel? Salvation. Okay, uh, thank you for your, your bravery, young sir. There you go. Um, so. If we had to summarize what is commonly conveyed or understood as the gospel, a lot of what is thought of in today's church, especially in the Western context, revolves around forgiveness of sins, personal salvation, going to heaven when we die. Um, you might have that, well, I don't know, I just always had this thing in my head of the person like grabbing you and like, if you had to die tonight, do you know where you would go kind of thing. And we think about evangelistic rallies and getting people to pray a sinner's prayer as some kind of form of eternal life insurance. And please understand me, none of these things are wrong. Forgiveness of sins, salvation, assurance, eternal hope are crucial elements of what we as a church preach and believe that Jesus came to give us. But I think that our study of the Gospel of Matthew, or the Gospel according to Matthew, and specifically the Sermon of the Mount, Sermon on the Mount will show us that although these things are essential elements, they are not the full picture. They are subplots of a greater story, which is what Jesus came to bring and to declare. And so what we're wanting to zero in on in this series is the question that Christians and non-Christians alike are asking. Does Christianity make a difference? Does being a Christian lead to a transformed you? And does a transformed you help to transform society? Because I'm sure none of us need convincing that society is broken, and if we're honest, we're also pretty broken. And this is where a big concern arises, because the reality is, if we're honest again, 
Praying a prayer and having some vague understanding of our sins being forgiven does not always translate into a totally transformed life, nor into a sustained and sustaining vision that leads to a radically different world. I don't know if any of you know Dallas Willard. He, um, he's um, relocated to heaven now, but um, he was a, just an amazing philosopher um, and Christian teacher and author. Um, and I just want to read this quote, if you guys can put it up there for me, please. Consumer Christianity is now normative. The consumer Christian is one who utilizes the grace of God for forgiveness and the services of the church for special occasions but does not give his or her life and innermost thoughts, feelings, and intentions over to the kingdom of the heavens. Such Christians are not inwardly transformed and not committed to it. He's like, when he speaks, it's like he packs a whole book into one paragraph. But <laughs> um, yeah, consumer Christianity is now normative. Okay, so what then is the complete picture? Where do we go to find a real understanding of the gospel of Jesus and the transformation that we so desperately seek in our own hearts and in our world? Well, I think the best place to go is the Bible, to the New Testament, where this term is used. And the first thing we see is that there are actually four gospels written from the vantage points of four different people who followed Jesus during his earthly life and ministry. So we get the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to Mark, according to Luke, according to John. And these eyewitness accounts record the life, message, and ministry of Jesus in order to explain why they believe he is the Messiah, the anointed one who was to come. And so as we'll see in the text this morning, that Jesus came preaching a gospel. And so what is that gospel? What does it mean? And what are the implications? Right, so before we get into that, let's read this morning's text, which, as you'll see, it's actually backing up a bit uh, into Matthew chapter 4, the last part of Matthew 4, and it sets the stage for Jesus as he launches into his famous sermon, and it's also going to set the stage for our series. So Matthew chapter 4, verse 17 to 25. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to it, otherwise it's up there. Particularly thirsty this morning. Right, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, 
and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Some important things to understand about Matthew's account. Matthew was one of the 12 disciples or close followers of Jesus. And he most likely wrote this in the 50s or 60s AD. Matthew was a tax collector, one of the most reviled classes in Jewish society, as they were seen as corrupt sellouts, complicit with the Romans, and using their power to defraud their own people. To be a tax collector was to be a sinner. Matthew records how Jesus saw him and called him to come and follow him. And this alone is a beautiful picture of the kingdom, of the nature of the kingdom of God, where those who are unworthy and undeserving are called in, welcomed, and given a place in the kingdom. Matthew's account was written primarily for a Jewish audience, and the literary structure is both brilliant and deeply layered. I always think of Shrek, you know, when he's like, you know, ogres have layers, you know, and, and Matthew's like that. Matthew's got layers. It shows both the sharpness of his mind and his training and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In order to get the full impact of what Matthew's saying, it's very important to know that Matthew is at pains in his first four chapters to show how Jesus is the prophesied and long-awaited Mashiach or Messiah or anointed one in the line of King David for whom his Jewish audience had been waiting for half a millennium and for whom there was an air of expectation as they remembered these Old Testament prophecies and awaited a deliverer as they languished under the oppressive and brutal tyranny of the Romans. And it's into this context that Jesus comes, announcing that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, has arrived. And so there's really a lot going on here that we wouldn't necessarily be aware of as we read it two millennia later at the tip of Africa. A few thoughts about this passage. I'm not going to go line for line, but rather focus in this morning on the important concepts so that we can come to the Sermon on the Mount next week with our hearts awakened and our understanding freshly stirred. I know that many of us have read this and heard this, heard opinions about it, had discussions, listened to preachers on this text. But what I want to invite us to do is to pause and to pray and to ask God for for fresh eyes to see what he's saying to the original readers and now what he's trying to say to us as we read, consider, preach, and discuss this portion of Matthew in the weeks to come. So let's do that right now. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we are struck by just the wonder of the kingdom of God and this mystery that is being unraveled and revealed for us. And so, Lord, I pray for each one of us this morning As we approach this text and as we approach this series, Lord, I pray that we would come with fresh eyes and fresh hearts, Lord, as if we'd never heard it or seen it or read it before. And I pray that you would speak to us, Holy Spirit, that you would reveal truth from your word that would transform us and transform the way we see you and we see our lives and we see the world. And God, that you would do a deep work in us as a community through this time. And so we invite you, Lord God, to come and speak to us. We submit our hearts to you. We submit our minds to you and our 
thoughts and our agendas and we allow you to come and hold sway in our hearts and speak what you want to speak, Lord. In Jesus' name. Okay, so the key themes I want to hone in on this morning are repentance, gospel, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, righteousness, and discipleship. So first off, repentance. Did anyone pick it up when we read the scripture? What was the message that Jesus preached? Because I'm thinking, okay, so Jesus came preaching a message. It must have been really important. What was it? Anyone? The kingdom of heaven. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so the first concept we need to look at here is this word repent. And I think it's become a, quite a loaded, religious-sounding word. Um, I think a lot of the connotations that we maybe attach to it is like feeling really bad or feeling really sorry for our sin. But is that what it really means? So let's look at it. Repent, or metanoia in the Greek, is to change our way of thinking. It's a turning around a complete alteration of the basic motivation and direction of one's life. Uh, that's from the New Bible Dictionary. A complete alteration of the basic motivation and direction of one's life. The idea is of a turning back or returning to dependence on and trust in God. It's exactly the same message that John the Baptist preached in chapter 3 verse 2. But in Jesus, we see this shift from John, the forerunner, to Jesus, the initiator of the kingdom. And so it's at this point in his life that Jesus begins to go public. And what does he do? He comes out telling people that the time has come to stop going the old way and to come this way. Repent. Turn around. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or the kingdom of heaven has arrived. And then we see in verse 23 that he went throughout all Galilee teaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. In fact, the kingdom of God is Jesus' number one topic by a long way. He refers to it more than 50 times in the account of Matthew alone. So let's break it down. What does gospel mean? Okay, so gospel comes from the Greek euangelion, where we get our word evangelist from, or evangelism, and it means good news. Basically, a herald is sent out with a report, with a proclamation of news of something that's happened, that a war has been won, and that a new king is on the throne. That's the primary idea. It's an announcement of the reign of a new king. And the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, because these terms are used interchangeably by the gospel writers, what is, firstly, what does kingdom mean? And I know we have very little to kind of relate this to in our context of Western democracy. I mean, what have we got? King Charles. He's not a great example. I'm, I'm not sure that he has any authority to rule anything beyond the lawn of Buckingham Palace. Sorry, I didn't mean to diss King Charles there. I'm sure he's a great guy. <laughs> but the reality is it's, it's not a real picture of what a kingdom is, right? To get a better grasp of this, we don't, as we learned in the last series, start with me in 2023. Because our language and our cultural context doesn't help us much. Actually, in, Eng in English, we think of a kingdom as an actual place, right? We think of, of, a, of a, like a, the borders of a state. But in the biblical context, kingdom refers to the rule of a king. It is a condition, a state of being ruled, 
a domain or jurisdiction. So just like boredom is a state of being bored. I hope none of you are bored. If you're bored, there's the door. No, it's locked, sorry. <laughs> kingdom, kingdom is a state of being under someone's rule. So if you're bringing a kingdom, you're bringing the rule and the jurisdiction of the king over every aspect of life in that realm. So Jesus is basically saying when he proclaims the royal news, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that the rule of God has arrived and its arrival takes place in and through him. And the first kind of thing that pops into my mind when I hear this is, well, has God not been reigning? Why does the kingdom of God suddenly begin now? I don't know if that kind of occurs to you as well, but for this, to understand this, we need to go back to the beginning of the story, right back to Genesis 1. God in creation endowed humanity with authority to rule with the expectation that we would carry out his rule as bearers of his image. We embody and image forth God's rule and reign over the world. Tim Mackey, uh, who's yeah, just a really helpful Bible scholar, says, God's plan was to share his world with humans and to have his reign and his rule and his will brought about in the world through human beings. Psalm 8, verse 4 to 6 says, What is man that you thought of him, you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. God's plan is to rule the world through human beings. But then we see how in Genesis 3, humans, after being enticed and deceived by the Satan, the evil one, effectively staged a coup against the rule of God on the earth, seeking to overthrow his government and replace it with self-government. Dallas Willard again says, When Satan undertook to draw Eve away from God, he did not hit her with a stick, but with an idea. It was, not, it was with an idea that God could not be trusted and that she must act on her own to secure her own well-being. And now, because humanity, God's authorized rulers on earth, chose to define good and evil on their own terms, causing that seismic event that we call the fall, earth became a rebel state a realm where the rightful rule of God is interrupted and undermined. Result? Sin has invaded the earth, and evil runs through just about every aspect of the good creation. But what we also see is that this understanding of the reinstatement of God's good rule is the central theme of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And that's why our understanding of the full gamut of the gospel becomes so crucial at this point. It's not just about forgiveness of sins. That's the doorway in. But if we're going to take up the invitation of Jesus to partner with him in the reestablishment of God's good rule over creation, we need to go in and explore the rest of the house. Also important to understand is that although the kingdom has arrived in Jesus, there is also a sense in which it is not yet fully here. It is still arriving, 
it's still to arrive. There's that already and not yet tension of the kingdom. Jesus' arrival and his life, death, and resurrection, where he comes as the second Adam to fulfill what the first Adam and every human since then has failed at, initiated the restoration of the rule of God. But that rule has yet to be fully realized over every aspect of creation. Why? Because he's still working through human beings. And so the story of all stories is in process. As Jesus, having lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died, rose from the dead and now sits at the right hand of the Father, having wrestled all authority in heaven and earth back from fallen humanity and Satan, he is at work in the world by his Spirit and through his redeemed people and assures us that he is coming back in glory and power to complete the restoration of his creation. Just as he was raised from the dead, he has promised to raise all who trust and follow him on a redeemed and renewed earth where heaven and earth are perfectly united again, where sin and death and pain are no more, and where righteousness is at home, thus fulfilling God's design for his world. And so, as we'll see in the weeks to come, you guys are awful quiet. <laughs> I thought that was pretty darn amazing. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so as we'll see in the weeks to come, what we have in the Sermon of the Mount is an incredible vision of life in the kingdom of God, of what life looks like under the rule of God. And hugely important to this vision is this term, is this concept or idea of righteousness. John Mark Comer says in Matthew's lexicon, righteousness means right relationships with God, with other people, with yourself, and with the earth itself. And that's because, as the Sermon on the Mount shows, Jesus did not come as a great military ruler to liberate his people from the tyranny of Rome. He came as the suffering servant king who was crowned on the cross and allowed himself to be killed in order to usher in his upside-down kingdom and liberate all people from the far greater tyranny of sin. And consequently, not just the Jewish people, but you and I and everyone who would come, regardless of race or rank or wealth or earthly status or how together we have our lives, are invited into this kingdom to repent of our self-rule, to stop going that way, and to respond to the call of Jesus to live a life of discipleship. Which brings us to our final point, discipleship. So we see in the text that Jesus goes and he calls disciples to follow him. What is a disciple? So this word comes from the Greek, mathetes, which means to learn. A disciple is someone who is learning the ways of a teacher through imitation and practice. Dallas Willard again says, a disciple is a learner, a student, an apprentice, I really like that word, a practitioner. Disciples of Jesus are people who do not just profess certain views as their own, but apply their growing understanding of life in the kingdom of the heavens to every aspect of their life on earth. And so what is the life of discipleship or apprenticeship that Jesus invites us into? 
Here we see Jesus calling uh, Simon and Andrew, and then James and John, as they're going about their daily work, which is fishing, to come and follow him. To us, that's like quite a foreign, weird idea. I mean, like imagine you're sitting in your cubicle on Monday morning, and like Paul comes in, and he's like, hey bro, follow me, <laughs> and like walks out. <laughs> it's just like foreign to us, but it, there is a context for that, and Jesus was doing what rabbis of his day would do. So he calls them to come and follow him, and then he promises to make them something. The life of discipleship is a radical lifestyle of repentance and participation in God's act of goodness, where right actions and obedience to the rule of the king flow from a heart aligned with his. I'll say it again. The life of discipleship is a radical lifestyle of repentance and participation in his act of goodness, where right actions and obedience to the rule of the king flow from a heart aligned with his. Now, something that Riley shared with me last week really got me thinking, and it's just a little quote from John Mark Comer. The question isn't, am I a disciple? It's, who or what am I a disciple of? Who or what am I a disciple of? So in reality, we are all disciples of something. We all follow something. People may claim to be atheists or to have no faith, but they are putting their faith in something, in some kind of a way of understanding the world and putting reality together, some kind of a coherent sense of, of who they are and what they're here for. And it's often without realizing it. We are learning from and mimicking someone. Think about this category that we've built around being an influencer. Again, as Dallas Willard said, Satan didn't hit Eve with a stick. He hit her with an idea. And that idea had massive consequences. At its heart, the truth is that we allow ourselves to be discipled by those who we believe will lead us to the good life, right? Whether that's a life defined by the pursuit and accumulation of money and things, or sexual expression, or like-worthy experiences that we can post on social media, or status and power, or any number of things. But as we close this morning, I want us to critically examine who or what we're following, and honestly ask ourselves, where is this leading me? And is it aligned with God's idea of what is good? And as we travel through the rest of this series, can I ask us to remember that we need our minds to be renewed by God's word. Because what we think is good is not necessarily what God says is good. But that's why we come to the Sermon on the Mount. John Mark Comer says it like this, The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' manifesto for a whole new way to be, to be human in the inbreaking reality of the kingdom of God. It's a mouthful. I'll read it again. The, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' manifesto for a whole new way to be human in the inbreaking reality of the kingdom of God. Let's make a commitment to immerse ourselves in the beauty of God's kingdom reality and receive his transforming grace as he makes us into the kind of people who submit to his good rule in every area of our lives. So we're going to go into a time of communion now. I'm going to ask Sharon to please come up and 
play a song for us while we do that. And so I'd love, us if, love it if we could just close our eyes where we are before we go and get the communion elements. And I just want us to, to spend a few moments reflecting. Just reflecting on this word and reflecting what God might be saying to us this morning. Where do we need to repent? Where do we need to stop going in a direction and trust Jesus as he leads us in a completely different direction? Who or what are we following? What are the voices that we're listening to? Is it the voice of Jesus, the voice of the King? the good king who's come to bring hope and healing and restoration to our lives and the world? Or is it someone else? 